0: So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Is this the beginning of the beginning of the end? Have we finally found a way to contain the pandemic? Today, we got some very encouraging data from Gilead on remdesivir, their powerful antiviral drug, which helps people recover from severe cases of COVID-19 a lot faster. We're talking in and out of the hospital in 11 days rather than 15 for patients who got the placebo, along with a small but significant reduction in mortality rate. Oh, even that's been up for debate in the afternoon. But listen to me, may not sound huge, but the results were so compelling that the doctors had to stop the clinical trial. It just wasn't ethical to keep giving people the placebo when they knew remdesivir could help. And that is bingo. Now, look, I've been telling you an effective treatment for COVID could be a game changer. Saying it over and over again. I said that it probably would be remdesivir. And sure enough, the market screamed higher in response. Dow surging 532 points. S&P running 2.66%. The Nasdaq leaping an astounding 3.75%. With much of the country preparing to reopen for business. Buy, bye bye. The big worry is that coming out of the quarantine will trigger a new wave of infections that could overwhelm the healthcare system. Frankly, it does almost seem inevitable. There was a real possibility that we'd be in and out of lockdown for the next year until we get a vaccine. Because, look, we're not tested enough. We don't wear masks in this country. We don't do contact tracing. But wait a second. Remdesivir changes the equation. With a course of medicine that saves lives and reduces the strain on our hospitals reopening the country right before we do it. Well, it becomes a lot less risky. Now, there are tons of skeptics out there who question everything from the drug's efficacy to its actual impact on the stock market. I see it in my Twitter feed. No one in the Twitter feed I know thinks it's anything other than a hoax. Oh, give me a break. Uh, but I, look, I, I'll give you this, though. I, I, I don't blame you if you're skeptical, but listen to me. In some ways, I know the study doesn't seem that impressive. Only takes the mortality rate from 11 percent down to 8 percent. That's not nothing. It's hardly a cure. Remember, vaccines stop things. This is an antiviral. So then what's the deal? Why was I so excited? Why was the market so excited from the get-go, from the opening bell? It's simple. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the guy who has the most credibility on COVID-19, said the results of the remdesivir trial reminded him of his first real victory in the fight against HIV-AIDS way back in the 1980s, when it was still a death sentence. He actually compared remdesivir to AZT, which was the groundbreaking anti-HIV drug that turned the tide. That's right. It started when I heard that, I said, oh my gosh, I remember it. I remember it. I remember when it happened and you couldn't believe it, that a disease that never would be cured, that they, they made a breakthrough. Okay, well, we, we still haven't totally cured HIV, but we've developed a cocktail of medications that have turned into a mostly manageable condition. AZT was the first real ray of hope. Now, Fauci's a pretty buttoned-up guy. He's been skeptical of other proposed treatments for COVID-19. In fact, I can say he's been anything but encouraging, including uh, towards some of the president's more ill-advised nostrums. Oh, not today. No, not today. Today, he struck a very different tone. Yes, the virus will still be lethal. Yes, this is an incremental improvement, not a panacea. But, man, yesterday we had nothing. It's a big deal. It's the first ingredient of a cocktail Fauci's been itching to put together, like he did to defeat AIDS. I'm so glad he stuck around. And that's why the market roared higher today. And make no mistake, this move is all about remdesivir. I can say that with confidence because we're right in the middle of earnings season and Wall Street hasn't exactly been thrilled with many of these reports. Let's go over some. When you look at the five big companies that reported last night and this morning, four of them were actually received poorly on an earnings basis. AMD, Starbucks, General Electric and Boeing, although Boeing finished up nearly 6% for reasons other than earnings or demand. The lone winner was Alphabet on earnings basis. As usual, all the macro data is terrible. I mean, you, know, you can't even look at these numbers because they seem so 1932-ish. And nothing new there. Fed did nothing of any significance. It was all Gilead. I know this because I interviewed the CEOs of Boeing, Starbucks, GE, and AMD this morning, and in each case, their weakness stem from the pandemic. Lisa Su, the brilliant CEO of AMD, put up a fantastic number, gave a solid forecast despite COVID-19. The fact that she even had a forecast was actually a big deal. However, she trimmed the low end of her sales guidance, COVID, of course, and the analysts pronounced it a slowdown. Some of them even whispered that AMD is beginning to seed its lead to processors to Intel. That's nonsense. AMD delivered an excellent quarter that was uh, slowed by customers who were dealing with a deadly virus that shut down vast swaths of the global economy. It's a testament to the strength of AMD's end markets, laptops, data centers, gaming, that the numbers were so strong, even in this tough environment. Give me a break. The truth is, AMD ran up to the quarter. Now it's getting hit with all the predictable sell offs like every time. I say, buy it. If we can get COVID under control sooner than expected, AMD's fourth quarter, gigantic. Then there's Starbucks, which got slammed in the beginning of the quarter because they had lots of exposure to China, then got slammed again at the end of the quarter when they had lots of exposure to here and the rest of the world, only forcing them to close half the stores in America. Now, look, there's no way this could be anything but a horrible quarter. So it's a horrible quarter. But now China's reopened and Starbucks is putting up new stores with alacrity there. in other week, they'll start opening their shuttered stores here in America. Once that happens, I bet Starbucks returns to growth mode because people need their caffeine. They love that nitro. Stocks will buy. Next, I might as well lump Boeing and General Electric together because they're suffering from the same ailment. This pandemic has wrecked the aerospace industry and the 737 Max debacle sure didn't help. We have no idea when the FAA will let the MAX fly again. I know Southwest Air has said that they don't expect any good news on this front until the end of October. But the real problem is that nobody's flying right now. Demand! So the airlines are stretched thin, and lots of them are canceling their orders. Boeing and GE desperately need this virus to be contained. Remdesivir makes that a real possibility because it starts the process of removing the huge and justifiable fear factor. Why did Boeing manage to rally if its GE didn't go? I think it's because Boeing's new CEO, David Calhoun, came on squawk on the street this morning, made us feel like he's uh, going to get a loan, meaning he can borrow money that will be backstopped by the Fed at probably a low rate and not sell equity to the Treasury Department, as some fear. It wouldn't surprise me if they augment that borrowing with a gigantic issuance of equity, like Southwest Air did very successfully this morning. Hey, listen, if Boeing does a seconder here, bye. As for GE, I don't know what to say, except that it's better to be lucky than good, and they're not lucky. Still, I believe in CEO Larry Culp. I believe in his ability to turn things around with this remdesivir data. I think GE, too, is a buy. How about Alphabet? It put a good quarter. So it's stock rally nearly 9%. Did, uh, did that contribute to the rally? Well, wait a second. Ruth Porat, Alphabet's fabulous CFO, mentioned that there might be some green shoots in advertising when all that, that was really visible before this was a burned down lawn. But then she spent the rest of the conference poo pooing her own optimism. The real reason Alphabet roared well, the word they used was efficient. The word I use is profligacy, as in the end of an era of profligacy, in the beginning of an era of aggressive profitability. When Alphabet is one of these periodic cycles where it's trying to make as much money as possible, like it did coming out of the Great Recession, you've got to own this stock. This one took me by surprise. i gotten used to blowing quarters, it's not blowouts, losing streak over but you can't really extrapolate from Alphabet to anybody else. Today I was all about this drug, okay, marking the turn. Now, tomorrow could be different in a positive way. We got extraordinary numbers from Facebook, Microsoft, and Tesla this very evening. Real eye poppers, with Facebook saying the first three weeks of April were stable. That kind of blew me away. Uh, the stock soared in after hours, right when it made that pre announcement. These are big companies, these are big numbers. Bottom line. For the true skeptics, I know how hard it is to believe that such a seemingly insignificant clinical trial of some old off-the-shelf drug could have this kind of positive impact. You don't believe me now. You're going to complain about me later. Enjoy yourself. Um, this drug makes a big difference, especially if you were worried about a second wave of infections after we reopen the economy. Remdesivir, it's just what the doctor ordered. Weston in Ohio, Weston. Boy, yeah, Jim. With the risk of shortages like meat in the U.S. and rice coming from India and Thailand, how can we trade agro-commodities right now? What trading platforms can young investors begin to utilize to buy and sell commodities? And would it be better to buy the producers and suppliers like Beyond Meat and the Andersons? Let's commodities not outthink directed? this, my friend. Let's not outthink this. You buy deer. Now, your name is Weston. So I was kind of thinking about Lamb Weston, but then I decided that was just being too cute. You buy deer. That's we don't fool around. We buy the highest quality. We're going to Sean in Virginia. Sean.
1: Hey Jim, I'm calling in today about ABM Industries, the really? company which primarily. The I, which primarily you know, I the,
0: That's not what you buy in a pandemic, my friend. We're, we're going to have to take a pass on that. I, I, I can't. It's already moved up so much. I mean, they, they do a lot of. Uh, repair, re- rehab. I would love them to come on because they're facilities management company. But it has had such a strong move. I'm going to have to say no to that one. Uh, Michael in New York. Michael. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. OK. I'm a longtime listener and we actually spoke about Okta back in May of 2018 when it was around 40. Um, Octa's up I 110. Think- That's a Kramer family favorite. What's going on? Hey, I think it may have been my family favorite before yours. Well, that's (laughs) it. They got that young fellow. He's not that young, actually. Go ahead.
2: Hey, anyway, you have to, you know, I read the uh, Gartner's Magic Quadrant Report, which I know you're familiar with. You bet. And uh, since
0: reading that, I've actually bought some Gartner, CrowdStrike, and Nutanix in this, uh, you know, zero identity cybersecurity space, which has kind of turned into a COVID security space. Yes. And, uh, in that report I read about a
2: really interesting company called Ping Identity. Ping!
0: Yeah, you know, I got to do work on Ping. You know, these stocks were so hard. I've been going with the crowd, strike pulling up with the Palo Alto and the far turning. I'm going with the—well, anyway, I got to do more work on Ping. It's interesting. Thank you for those kind words. By the way, uh, tonight, I didn't even mention the president is saying some good things about oil and gas. No wonder there's a short squeeze to end all short squeezes in oil and gas this very evening. Ping! All right, today's move was all about something that the bears don't want to concede. But they're wrong. Remdesivir. Thank you, Gilead. Maybe we've reached the beginning of the beginning. i my money tonight. Is there still an appetite for yum brands? Hey, remember, that's KFC, that's talk about Pizza, uh, amid the COVID 19 pandemic. I'm going to talk with the CEO after earnings, find out what he sees. Then, looking for a shelf stable stock in an uncertain market? Well, how about the CEO of Campbell's letting us know how things are going? And at a time when millions of people are losing their jobs, I know it seems kind of odd versus what the Dow did today.
2: The goal? Explain the 1990s in exactly 60 songs. Tupac, Warren Hill, You Oughta Know, Cream. The greater goal? Move past cheap nostalgia to something deeper and weirder and better. My name is Rob Harvilla. I'm a music critic at The Ringer. And whether you're full of teenage angst or you feel bored and old, whether you don't know the song at all or you know it far too well, my new show will take you through the decade one song at a time. It's 60 songs that explain the 90s. Follow and listen for free on Spotify.
0: It's been an awful couple of months for the restaurant industry, aside from a handful of rare exceptions. Let's call it Chipotle's, Domino's, obviously delivery, Wingstop, some delivery pickup. Unless you have an incredible delivery and takeout platform, lockdown's been absolutely devastating. Increasingly, though, we're seeing some middle ground here. Restaurant chains with deep pockets that are holding up OK, even as they've experienced some big declines. Take Yum! Brands, the parent of KFC, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. More than 50,000 locations across, across the world, including a one, well, one place it doesn't have is China. That was spun off years ago as Yum China. This morning, the real Yum reported, and while the quarter wasn't perfect, it also wasn't the end of the world, which is why the stock only got dinged 81 cents today. The numbers were nearly in line with Wall Street's lowered expectations. Sales a little better, earnings a little less. For the whole quarter, KFC saw an 8% same-store sales decline. Pizza Hut was down 11%. Taco Bell was actually up 1% as the owner of the temporarily closed bar, San Miguel. I'm jealous. Yum was in good shape until mid-March when the outbreak exploded. Even now, uh, they're working with their franchisees to promote contactless deliveries and safe drive through pickups that allow the chain to operate during a time when so many competitors are closed. Could be a lot worse. So what's the future look like? Let's check in with David Gibbs, the new CEO of Yum! Brands, learn more about the quarter and how this company's handling COVID-19. Ms. Mr. Gibbs, welcome to Mad Money.
3: Well, thank you for having me, Jim. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to do this in person after our next earnings call. Wouldn't that be great?
0: Oh, that would be terrific. Just terrific. Well, David, look, the country's about to open up. People are going to be going out. What do you think it means for your great brands?
3: Well, look, first, I'd like to start by thanking all of our employees around the world, uh, particularly our frontline workers, the 1.5 million people that are in our restaurants. These people are dealing with an incredibly challenging environment and doing an amazing job bringing our business to life for the consumers today, serving them the safe, affordable, craveable, and convenient food in a low-contact manner that they want. And I'd also like to thank our franchisees. They're our great partners, 2,000 franchise entities around the world, of which Yum China is one of them, uh, serving our customers and Taking care of our business and partnering with us to adapt to the changes that are taking place in the marketplace. And as as you said, you know the business is changing uh, and the consumers' needs are changing, and we are there to meet it. You know we have a very heavy off premise business. Uh, We were off to a great start uh, in 2020, building on the momentum that we had in 2019. You mentioned Taco Bell was up one for the quarter. They were actually up six before you know we had the impact of COVID 19. And, you know, all of our businesses are getting stronger all around the world. So we're now dealing with the challenges of COVID-19, and I'm incredibly inspired and proud of how we're getting through this and the business is getting stronger. And I'm convinced we will come out of it as a stronger company.
0: Well, how do you feel about the reopening? I know it's going to be staged, but are you looking for a surge of demand?
3: Well, you know, the reality for us is that we do have stores closed. We had, at peak, 11,000 stores. We talked about that today on the earnings call. We're now down to just 10,000 stores closed out of our 50-plus thousand. But the vast majority of those closures are outside the U.S. So, when you're talking about reopenings in the United States, it's not really reopenings for us. Our stores are open in the United States because we skew so heavily off-premise. We have 95% of our KFCs and Taco Bells with drive-thrus. Obviously, Pizza Hut is perfectly designed to meet consumers' needs in the environment. So for us, it would just be reopening the dining room okay. in addition to having already operated the restaurant. So it's right, a little so let's, bit different- let's
0: talk about reopening the dining room because there are issues. I mean, for instance, the CDC put out a note about a, uh, about a restaurant in China In uh, Guangzhou, which had air conditioning that blew from one table to another table to another table, the airflow brought out a cough that led to many instances of COVID-19 at the restaurant. What are you doing to be sure that people will be safe in the restaurant?
3: Well, to start with, we're being incredibly cautious in going above and beyond when it comes to the safety of employees and customers. I think we talked about this the last time you and I spoke. We always go above and beyond when it comes to food safety. If the procedure that that you know a local health department has is they want you to put gloves on, we have you sterilize your hands before you put the glove on, even though it's not required. So we've been doing that in our restaurants for years. And in this environment, we've obviously pivoted to masks and gloves for all employees, and and we're, we're adding shields to our restaurants, taking the temperature employees, all the things that customers would want to do and employees would want to ensure safety in the restaurant. But you raise a good point. There are a lot of unknowns about reopening restaurants. The CDC is issuing guidance. The National Restaurant Association has guidance. We're going to go above and beyond whatever guidance is out there. And that's why we're going to be cautious about opening our dining rooms.
0: How about about the the, uh, chain of food? We're all throughout all the papers today talking about uh, the food chain. Does it work? Could it break down? Particularly, Particularly chicken and meat What's going to happen for you guys?
3: Yeah, We're in good shape when it comes to our supply chain, but it's obviously something we talk about every day. We know we have four to six weeks of supply secure, and then beyond that, we've got a pretty good comfort that we'll have supply and we have contingency plans. I know that there's a lot of discussion about supply chain, but what's really happening is you're seeing the disruption of the supply chain into the restaurants and more demand into grocery. And that's causing shifts. And you're seeing some, you know, with the lack of demand, uh, closing of some plants won't necessarily show up as a lack of food for where people want it. But we're in good shape.
0: All right. So how about Pizza Hut? How do you get that uh, to do better? What is going to take it so that you feel confident that this division should remain a division within the House of Yum?
3: Well, first of all, we're absolutely ecstatic that Pizza Hut is part of the House of Yum. It's a great brand. It's a global, iconic brand, and in times like this, it's even more valuable in our portfolio. And we've been on a mission with Pizza Hut to migrate it from what started, you know, 50, 60 years ago as a dine-in business to a true modern delivery, carry-out, technology-driven business. And we're making great progress. You can see that in some of the results I shared today. And with what consumers want from brands today, they want Pizza. Pizza Hut's kind of offering. They want great indulgent food at great value price points uh, in a safe, low contact environment. We at Pizza Hut, as you know, introduced contactless delivery and contactless carry out in China, and then we've taken their learnings and spread them throughout the world. Uh, just to give you one great data point our Pizza Hut Japan business is up over 50% for the month of April so right now we're seeing that model really connect with consumers this contactless model and everything that Pizza Hut stands for and one of the great strengths of Pizza Hut is this is a brand people trust they grew up with it it's been around for 60 years and in times like this people turn to the craveable indulgent food from brands they can trust that they know are going to deliver to them in a safe manner so we love pizza Hutt, and we're excited about what's going on with Pizza Hut in the U.S. All right, with Kevin, Kevin Hockman, our new president. All right, there.
0: So, so last question. I'm concerned you are a franchise operation. Uh, franchisees are not all created equal in terms of their balance sheets. What are you doing to help some of the uh, franchisees that are weaker? And are they going to the uh, PPP?
3: We've offered, globally, we've offered um, for franchisees that are in distress and that need support, we have offered them a grace period on their royalties. We've offered them um, the, uh, some deferrals on some of their capital obligations for remodels and new unit stores. We recognize that liquidity is important right now, and we want to support our franchisees. As far as the U.S. franchisees and accessing the PPP program, as you know, that, uh, being a, a restaurant owner and a small business owner, uh, you know, you're, and a great advocate for the restaurant industry, I I'd add, you. you know, our, our franchisees in the U.S. are exactly that. They're small business owners, and uh, they were harmed when the coronavirus hit and impacted everybody's business. And uh, it, what they're doing with their banks and applying for loans is obviously, you know, their business. Um, but certainly um, the program was designed for people like them to keep employees employed in their stores. And that's what we're doing. As I mentioned earlier, we're staying open through this crisis. But the,
0: Obviously, worldwide organizations, so each country different. But uh, you, you feel pretty confident that most of the countries are in pretty good shape.
3: We feel, as we said on the call today, you know, franchise health, you can't paint with a broad brush when you have 2,000 franchisees. Um, but, you know, we went into the crisis certainly with a few people that were in distress and, you know, that hasn't changed. Um, but, you know, we're working with each of our franchisees. We're going to get through this and, uh, you know, the spirit in the field is clearly we're learning every day. You know, we're an organization built on brand builders, people that react to consumers' changes, and we're figuring out how to thrive in this environment. And I see our business getting stronger every day.
0: Excellent. That's great news. Thank you very much to David Gibbs. He's the CEO of Yum Brands, Y U M. When the smoke clears, there won't be a lot of restaurants left, but this one will be one of them. Mad money's back into the brain.
1: Support for this podcast comes
0: from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV.
1: Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24 7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live
0: sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire
1: TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.
0: We know the packaged food industry is on fire as people all over the world now feel compelled to keep their pantries well stocked. We've seen the empty grocery store shelves. But yesterday, Campbell's too published an AK that included some ridiculously bullish data from IRI. That's a market research firm that Wall Street swears by. Listen to this. In the four weeks ending April 19th, IRI saw some monster increases. Total meals and beverages up 34%. Total snacks up 16%. Campbell's soup up more than 41. Prego pasta sauce 49. Pepperidge Farm cookies 28. Snyder's and Hanover pretzels 19. Kettle brand chips 45 point 44.5 only goldfish experienced a decline that looks like it's because of supply problems because everybody loved goldfish even before the pandemic and that's some phenomenal growth no one of the stocks rallied twenty few percent from its lows last month can it keep climbing let's take a closer look with mark klaus he is the new president and CEO of campbell soup and a man who's widely viewed as a miracle worker within the industry he had a clearer sense of where his company is headed mr klaus welcome to mad money
2: uh, great to be here jim i'm uh I'm happy to spend some time with you today.
0: Oh, I'm thrilled that you're here. All right. So, sir, the moment that it happened, I, had a, I admit I had a panic attack. But my wife, she said, let's have a Campbell Soup attack. We went in. Everybody knows this. We bought about, I don't know, 20 cans, and then we bought everything else you make. Uh, and you know what? I, I, I found out that just like when my mom said. I love it. And yeah. it's like we rediscovered it. That's what happened because you got too many repeat orders for me to think it was just one time only pantry
2: yeah no i I think you are not alone in uh in your experience uh I think you know we saw the the move from the initial uh pantry loading and and very much followed a lot of the same behaviors you'd see in a big storm or something coming in um but what's ex- what we've been experiencing since then is really what I believe to be more behavior driven so I've got the product in my house i I'm spending more time at home i'm cooking more. A lot of the behavior is driving the usage. And, and I think so far what we're feeling and, and still relatively early days is that that experience has been positive. And, yeah. you know, I'm really happy we started this journey before um, <laughs> the situation occurred. And, and I think it allowed us improving quality of the product, really driving a focus on those core businesses that are now. Uh, incredibly, in high demand as we look across the portfolio.
0: Now, what happens? Are you working twenty four seven? Because even and I just checked last night at a store; it's still not there. I mean, it still runs out. It's like the truck. I get told the same thing always: the truck comes Tuesday morning, Jim. The truck comes Tuesday morning. Is when when can you possibly catch up with the
2: demand? Yeah, well, we're we're working hard. I, I do think if you're watching the trends very closely. Uh, we've seen a little bit of a slowdown in these last couple of weeks, which, uh, as you point out, is, is not the worst thing in the world. As It gives us an opportunity uh, to rebuild some of that inventory. I can promise you uh, the plants have been doing just an amazing job. I, I mean, I'm inspired daily uh, by watching uh, the, our team go to work, get the job done, whether it's in the plants or on the front line for sales. Um, and we're doing an amazing job. But if you're looking at four week trends where. You're watching demand in the 40s on a business that uh, we were just in the early innings of a turnaround on. It certainly put a little bit of a strain from day to day. But I feel good about our ability to keep filling the shelves on a regular basis and keep that flow of product going.
0: Okay, we know people are snacking more than ever. Particularly, look, there's a lot of work at home, which I think also is part of the soup. But Snyder's Lance, I was critical of the deal. I thought it was an overpay. Uh, I also thought it hurt the balance sheet. But that was previous administration. We're not have to think about that. You have worked out this balance sheet so that I and you've got uh, Snyder's going that I say that maybe this deal, it wasn't so bad.
2: Is that fair? I, I think it's very fair. I, you know, and, and I'll be honest, my perspective uh, from the outside looking in, I think I underestimated as well what the value of this portfolio really is. And, and when you look now at what we're bringing to bear and snacking, I think we're in a very unique position. We're playing in big, well-developed categories, but we're playing in differentiated ways. If you look at the brands we have, whether it's within crackers, having goldfish, a better for you kid snack, or within cookies, a huge category, but we're bringing a more premium offering with Milano and Farmhouse, even in tortilla chips, um, which has been experiencing a lot of growth, We're bringing late July, which is an organic platform that's really worked well. And and I think our ability to play in unique ways and bring the power of these two companies together, great marketing, innovation and growth engine on Pepperidge Farm, very scrappy, kind of in the weeds uh, DSD organization and in-store merchandising Mm -hmm. from Snyder's Lance, bring those two organizations together together. It's creating a very formidable portfolio and one that I think is very well positioned and arguably better than I even thought uh, until I got to, you know, under the hood and I got to see those businesses.
0: This leads to my next question, and I think it was important. I should have said this beginning. You had a lot of momentum going into this because of changes that you made. But one of them is uh, hard for us to understand unless we're in your business. You put as number two reason why you've got progress, improved retailer relationships. Is that clubs? Is that chains? And what was what? What did you have to do? Because obviously, they're your partners. And if they don't like you, they can hurt you. If they like you, they can help you.
2: What did you do? Well, I think the, the first thing, and, and this is so important uh, for the world we were in before, the world we're in now, and, and I, I would certainly expect going forward, is really understanding what the strategic objectives of your partners are and finding ways where we're able to create common ground. And, you know, I I tell this story a lot. I I think we were in a world where some of our businesses, some of our iconic businesses like Soup, we were managing more for cash and profit while our retail partners are trying to grow uh, and create share and demand. And when you're at that position of different objectives, a lot of times those conversations will deteriorate into a dialogue about price or, or distribution and that's not the conversations that you want to have. What we need to be doing as the clear leader in a category like soup or in pasta sauces, we've got to find a way to work together to bring relevance back to these categories, important categories, even more so today, to be able to drive growth. And when we do that, I think the conversations change. And a big part, I believe, of some of those early wins that we were getting was just coming back to the table in a way where we're talking about growth. And it's just so important to do that as the retailers are trying to solve many of the same uh, problems or challenges we are.
0: Right, one last question. Uh, everyone's on edge, uh, how can you not be? Uh, when you're on edge, uh, in my household, and many other households, we go for what we like the most. And we eat it, and we're not that sensitive to calories potato chips. My absolute favorite food. Everybody's favorite food. How did you these numbers are exploding? Is it because people just say, you know what? I I need a break. Give me a bag of potato chips.
2: Yeah, I think I would say we're seeing three trends right now that that our portfolio happens to be very well positioned to address within consumer behavior. And and I think, again, you're not alone. We're all experiencing uh, a little bit of this unprecedented environment, and it does change behavior. And I think the three big trends that we're seeing right now, first, is this renewance of uh, a renewal in cooking as a behavior. And I'm not talking about gourmet mm-hmm. cooking. I'm talking about what we call quick scratch cooking, putting a few ingredients together that our products serve very well. Right. I think the second trend, and the one you just talked a little bit about, is comfort. Right. So coming back to brands that bring comfort, and that may be anything from, you know, Campbell's chicken noodle or tomato soup with a grilled cheese sandwich to a great bag of kettle potato chips. All of those serve in that purpose of return to comfort. And then I think the third and probably the one that, that as we think about going forward, we're very mindful around is value. Um, right. I think, you know, regardless of where you may land on your perspective, on what the economic environment's gonna look like. I do think the the idea that we're going to be navigating some semblance of a recession or at least an economic slowdown and our ability to bring value every day to consumer households is very important. And again, I think if you look at our snacks and our meals and beverage business, um, and historically speaking, We've been very, very relevant in those moments of value.
0: All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. You really just have crushed it. I wish we had you before this so people would know how already the term was going. That's Mark Klaus. He's president of Campbell's Soup. This is a growth company, people. It's been a long time right. for being be able to say that. Thank you so much, sir. OK, we'll see you again soon. Jim. Absolutely. Man Money's back after the break. priced in. That's the question at the heart of this market. Last month, the averages crashed. Trillions of dollars in value were wiped out in the blink of an eye. And that's why for weeks now, all sorts of stocks have been able to rally, including stocks that are right in the blast radius of the COVID-induced slowdown. Take automatic data processing, ADP for short. It's the largest payroll processor in America. At a time when millions of people are losing their jobs, you'd think ADP would be a tough stock to own. But this morning, the company actually reported a slightly better than expected quarter. While management had to cut their full year forecast, they didn't withdraw their guidance like so many other companies. They gave you some certainty about how bad this would get. In response, the stock rallied nearly three bucks, in large part because ADP was already punished for this weakness. From mid February to mid March, the stock plunged from 182 to 103 43% decline. That was too much. Since that ADP's rebounded to 145, I think that's more realistic. Hey, more important, these guys are uniquely plugged into the U.S. economy in a way that could be incredibly useful to the U.S. government. Listen to what former White House economic advisor Gary Cohn had
2: to say on closing bell yesterday. If we really want to get
1: this right, why don't we just give the money to the payroll processors? Let the payroll processors, they know how many companies need the money. They know how many employees they have just Treasury, go send the money to the payroll processors, and then let's follow up with the paperwork behind that. I think that would have been a cleaner way to do this, and I think we would have had less mistakes in getting the money to the right people. I think that's a great point. Let's dig deeper with Carlos
0: Rodriguez. He's the president and CEO of Automatic Data Processing. To find out more about the quarter, the state of the labor market, and the craziness about the stock market, too. Mr. Rodriguez, welcome back to Mad Money.
1: Hey, Jim, how are you? Uh, Good, Carlos. I hope you're doing the same. I'm doing all right. I hope you're uh, healthy and your family's healthy. It's obviously a very challenging time, and I wish we weren't uh, talking under these circumstances, no. but uh, happy to be here with I'm you. I'm glad you're
0: here. All right. I've got to ask you something. We always hear, wait a second, how can the stock market be going up when there's maybe 20 million people unemployed and things are going badly? You, know, you, you are at the intersection of, really, business creation in this country. What do you tell people when when the stock market goes up, knowing what you see in the job world?
1: I tell them to call Jim Cramer, Um, (laughs) because I I think, Jim, what happens is, as as you tell all your viewers, the, the market is the ultimate kind of look into the future. And I think what might be happening is people may be already anticipating the worst may have been behind us. I don't know, because obviously I'm not a scientist and I'm not a doctor, but we have seen a couple of indicators of some bottoming. As an example, we have some HR systems that track the number of new job postings and the number of screenings, like background checks when people get hired. And those numbers just kind of fell off the cliff at the end of March, all the way into April. And in the last couple of weeks, we've begun to see those numbers actually stabilize. And so that's, obviously that doesn't mean people are getting hired yet, but it's possible that companies already are anticipating some kind of normalization or some kind of opening in certain states. And they already may be actually posting jobs. Uh, So the market has a way of sensing these things. But I think you know that better than I do.
0: Well, thank you. But there's some great comments at the end of your conference call. Your third recession. I think maybe you can put it in perspective more than most who are particularly worried about their job or have lost their job. You've seen it. There is an end and it does come back.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I tried to really give a sense of of realism, but also optimism on our call today, because the truth is that the, this downturn is much worse than what we saw in the last two recessions in terms of just magnitude and also the speed. Um, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily has to last as long when you see all the government stimulus that's being put in to the system and the fact that it's a health crisis and not a banking crisis or some other kind of crisis like we had in, a, in 2000 or in 2008, you know, there's some hope that things could uh, improve quite a bit faster. But what I tried to convey is that there's really no way of escaping the fact that the numbers are bad. Right. You know they're they're bad. The people out there know that they're bad, and the people are losing their jobs are feeling it, unfortunately, firsthand. So there's really no way to sugarcoat it. It's a bad situation, but I think the government has reacted in the right way. And uh, I'm hopeful that as we get through the health crisis that the economy, which obviously exited in a very strong position, as we did, we had a great third quarter. I think as you as you said, six um, percent growth is one of the best quarters you've ever had. Yeah, we really saw the metrics I and mean, we've been working really hard over the last two three years. You know, this we've talked a few times about improving our products, <laughs> uh, improving our productivity. We've had margin improvement. We've had improvements in our client retention. We really were firing on all cylinders. And, you know, this happened. It's happened to everyone. So right. uh, there's no no sense in crying over spilled milk. We got to move forward. And pick up the pieces of what we have, but we exited in a very strong way, just like the economy was in strong mm-hmm. in, a, in strong shape. And so I, I think that we're we in the economy, I think we're in a strong position when this thing rebounds to really be able to take advantage. Well, I
0: I uh, ran a clip from my friend Gary Cohn, who had a, I thought a very same way. I went to the Treasury, said the same thing. ADP would be the best way to figure this out. Neutral, you get the numbers. No, no persuasion, no mistakes, no giving to Ruth Chris, no giving to Shake Shack, no giving to the L.A. Lakers.
1: Uh, why didn't you? Why do you think you didn't get it? And how much better do you think you could have done? Well, as you probably know, we've been uh, working with uh, various parts of the government. So we've worked with the Treasury, with the IRS, with SBA. We've, uh, I myself have spoken with uh, a number of senators. Um, we all offered, I think, in an open letter to U.S. leaders that we would help in any way that we could. Uh, And the problem is that this is a very complicated situation. The scale of the issue that needs to be addressed is quite large. So I think when the the clip that you just played, the concept of getting money out there and taking care of the paperwork later, I think is a great idea, but probably not one that was workable. And in defense of what has happened with the SBA and with the banks, had we taken that approach with the banks, we probably would have been able to expedite uh, you know the the money getting into the hands of small businesses but and, we've said getting right getting
0: get into the right hands because you have the real figures.
1: Absolutely we, we definitely do and I think we have a great relationship with government. Uh, as you know we're completely nonpartisan. We don't have uh any real biases and we just we're just here to help. We want to be good citizens and I think you've said numerous times on your on your show this is the time for all of us to pitch in and be good citizens, help our associates help our clients and help our country and, frankly, help our world, because
0: we are a global company. Well, as a client of your company, I can tell you you're doing the best you can. I wish it would have been a lot easier to go to you. But you know what? They did what they did, and it's keeping the country afloat. And you're doing what you can do, too. I want to thank Carlos Rodriguez. He's the president and CEO of ADP, a great American company. Two and a half percent yield. Unbelievable quarter. This is a buy. Mad Money's back after the break. It is time! It's over the night! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? over the lightning round. Let's go Mark in Texas, Mark!
1: Jim, hello. How do you feel about DP? Debt soaring? Business output,
0: not good. No, no, but then, no, you got to be careful. They, they actually have pretty good um, oil output. But remember, we went for a trade on the oils, and the largest one I said you should buy is Chevron. I'm sticking by that. Let's go to Barry in Delaware. Barry.
3: Jim, long time. viewer since your first show with Larry Kudlow. Oh I want your God. opinion about the only company in the blood transfusion space to have FDA approval for pathogen reduction of both platelet and plasma components. With use of plasma as a possible treatment for COVID patients, what's your opinion about serious corporations?
0: You know, that's a great idea. I mean, that's a, that's a great spec idea. i got to do work on that to see if that went. I mean, i want I got to be very careful because, remember, this is not a large-cap company, but you're, you're, this is the kind of thing where you get that kind of analysis that you just gave me, and you put me to work, and that's what I'm going to do. Let's go to Mike in Pennsylvania. Mike, Mike, Mike.
2: Jenny Chell, thank you for 25 years. Of market
0: wisdom. Well, thank you very much. I'd be chilling. Hey,
1: what do you think of
0: TJX? I am all over TJX, like a cheap pair of black pants that I bought there before I went out to the West Coast, and I beat them. All right, here's the deal with TJX. They're going to get all this inventory, noted for the travel trust, got crushed in it, coming back in it. They are just going to be the beneficiary of all the problems of the other stores, and that's why you should buy TJX. I need to go to Corey in Ohio, please, Corey.
2: Doctor Jimmy Till, thank you yo. for taking my call, sir. Of course. I, I was wondering, with the rapid growth in e-commerce,
3: if Westrock, (WRK) is a good long-term buyer. I gotta tell you,
0: this—I com- bought it. Uh, that's what it was the theory that I was using. It got completely crushed. The stock is finally bottoming. I don't have a reason why it's bottoming. Uh, other than the fact that, yes, e-commerce once again. What it really is levered to is the number of plants and this and how much liner board is per piece. Uh, but it's good for trade. Betsy in California. Betsy. Hey, Jimmy. Been with you since Cudlo Day. Oh, my God. That's a long time. Cudlo's <laughs> not running the country. It's dynamite. What's going on? I know. Well, I'll tell you, Jim, I live in Danville, California, and I know you're familiar with that. Yes, I am. Here, near Blackhawk. Okay. Okay. And, and I've observed something that I've never seen brought up on your show, and that is that the one thing that people who work very, very hard and are very successful never have any of, it's time. And sure. for that reason, even though there may be a temporary dip in RH, RH is going to come out of this smelling like a rose. Yes, because- Gotta come out of it. Well, what happened? No, we really—we didn't get to the stock side of it. Go ahead. And the stock is. F-A-E. RH. I love RH. Somebody downgraded it the other day. I said, What are you like kidding me? You downgraded here? I mean, the, the, Freeman is the bet, Gary, will you please come on and tell come people by, how by. the one thing they do not do is stop by the at RH? And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
3: The Lightning Round is sponsored by T.D. Ameritrade.
0: They're letting every company live? That's my takeaway when I see the gigantic moves in stocks like Carnival, Norwegian Cruise, Discover, American Airlines, United Continental, all the oils and the hotels, particularly after hours. Until this week, it wasn't entirely clear what the Fed and the White House really were planning to do to fight the rising tide of unemployment. But now the whole picture's come together. With the payroll protection program, they're trying to save small business, even if it means funding some larger companies that don't need it or shouldn't get it. I think it's better to err on the side of doing too much rather than doing too little, especially since most of these larger companies have been shamed into returning the money. More importantly for the broader economy, when you look at the terrific action, in the cruise lines and the mar- the marginal credit card companies and the airlines and the hotels, you have to understand that's because the Fed is going to box backstop loans to these firms directly or indirectly. It's an implicit guarantee for all sorts of companies in the travel and leisure business, which is why the group's been rallying all week. Now, though, you've got to layer on the remdesivir factor. If you think we have a chance of beating the illness in the near future and you like to cruise, you know what? I know you'll be back cruising i the prices for cruises, Nick i got to tell you, they are so inexpensive, they're begging you to take one. Have vaccine, we'll travel. This is huge, people, huge. The Fed's picking some winners eh, not, and some losers, but uh, almost everyone's a winner. Oh, and, and then after the bell, we found out that the president's directly involved in helping the oil industry. This is causing a short squeeze of epic proportions, which is predictable, given how we said you could buy the oils a Monday show. And then I was roasted and flared on Twitter as much as I was for backing remdesivir. Well, I told you all you needed to know about which way the shorts were leaning, I think that supporting these industries is the right move. Without government intervention, many of these companies might go under, producing tens of millions more layoffs, like the Depression. Rather than let that happen, the Fed and the Treasury have decided it's better to keep these big companies on life support until we beat this pandemic and the economy comes back. The ripple effect here is incredible. The bank stocks were a one-way ticket to hell. Now they're roaring business. For all we know, the Fed will backstop all the loans they're making to companies that would ordinarily fail in this kind of recession. If that's the case, the financials will be just fine, regardless of how much credit card and mortgage debt goes unpaid. It's not the end of the world if you're being backstopped. Of course, not perfect. You could argue that a system where we bail out the biggest companies every time there's a recession is fundamentally unfair. I'd say you got a point. Right now, the alternative is worse. We know that many small businesses will fail when the payroll protection money runs out because they can't turn a profit as long as physical distancing remains in effect. Good restaurants try to put as many seats as they can into a restaurant. Now you've got to take them out. You've got to take tables out. And you've got to show people where they can stand at a bar. I'd say the vast majority of restaurants that were doing okay before the virus hit would never have even been opened if their owners knew that it would be illegal to draw a crowd. That's the economics of the business. Again, though, it's easier to keep them alive with the payroll protection program hoping for a vaccine or a cocktail on top of remdesivir than it is to let a gigantic industry go under, causing millions to lose their jobs. And there are millions in the travel, leisure and restaurant businesses. Is it unfair for the government to intervene so that these companies can live? Oh, sure, for capitalist purists, but it would also be unfair to allow millions, tens of millions of layoffs. Our country has been devastated by a horrible pandemic that it can't be insured and is not our fault. There's a lot of unfairness going around. All we can do is try to pick the least bad option. Call me crazy. But I think the least bad option is the one where we avoid a second Great Depression, which is exactly what the Fed and Treasury and the President and Congress are all trying to do. Stick with Craig. The one thing we didn't expect this evening, genuine blowouts. Uh, I've got to tell you, Microsoft was just a blowout. I mean, huge numbers. Facebook, I mean, who would have thought that Facebook was supposed to be doing, yeah, they were supposed to be doing terribly. No, they were doing unbelievably well. Qualcomm having unbelievable numbers. And by the way, can I just tell you, cruise ships soaring, airlines soaring, oils soaring, lots of short squeezes after the bell. Uh, we'll give us a couple more days, and then we have to rethink, because at this point, we're starting to really go, head into some sort of Breakout zone. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you i find it just for you right here on May Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. Markets in Turmoil with Scott Wapner
3: is next.